In this episode, we're talking to a grassroots environmental movement that has won the hearts of many in New South Wales, been successful in engaging the media and politicians in a meaningful way and galvanising an entire community. Manana Matters Environmental Association have been fighting residential development in their patch of New South Wales because it's one of the only unburnt areas of bushland around the Conjola National Park on the New South Wales south coast. Hi and welcome. Buckle up for a new episode of Beyond the Green Line, the only podcast hooking you up for a virtual coffee date with some of the leading change makers, industry experts and everyday activists in environmental and agricultural sciences. So pop in your headphones, go for a walk and get ready for inspiration, ideas, insights and real life stories beyond the green line we balance along. Hello and welcome to this podcast of Beyond the Green Line. I'm your host, Chanel gleason Willie. Our guest today is George of Manana Matters, a community action group opposing two residential developments of pristine bushland around the idyllic south coast village of Manana. This bushland is some of the only unburnt bush in the area and is refuge for displaced wildlife. The ones that have been recorded are the greater glider, ground parrot, powerful owls and square-tailed kites. Hi, George, and thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So can you tell me what you remember of Manana and from when you first moved there and why you actually decided to first or to move there originally? Why was it so special? Oh, it is, it's a magic place and I guess because it was quite remote and un, undeveloped, you know, and it was sort of perhaps even a bit of a, a, a secret, um, a well-kept secret, I suppose. Um, yeah, minimal development and kind of a unique situation where you've got five tiny little hamlets which form the redhead villages and they're called that because they're on the redhead peninsula um so you've got north bendalong bendalong manana kanjurong point and beringer lake and um yeah so they're all separated by a, a green corridor and you know you've got to jump on your push bike or, or walk from one to the other and um around all of them there are you know, um, quite empty beaches. And then around those townships uh, of the Redhead Villages is a massive national park, the Conjola National Park. So you're very close to the ocean and the environment. You've got wildlife coming into your your yard, um, beautiful bird life. And uh, I'm a, a keen birder myself, so I was thrilled when I first moved there to see birds that um, you don't normally encounter um, in your in your day to day business as an Australian. So um, yeah, I just immediately just fell in love. I felt really at home with nature there. So this is, I guess, such a strong visual of what Manana is and how wonderful a place it is. Can you tell me about the feelings that you were first experienced when you went there and what actually drew you to move there? Yeah, well, I actually, I had been living in the Illawarra just up from Manana and I uh, had a change in my whole life and ended up traveling around Australia in a motorhome by myself. And I took 18 months 
Um, and all the, as I was traveling, I was thinking, I was keeping an eye out for where I might like to, to move to one day. Uh, it wasn't even supposed to be then it was one day in the future, you know? Um, but yes, I had some money that I needed to put back into real estate and make sure that I kept, um, a roof over my head for when I needed it. And I, you wouldn't believe I went right past the turn off to Manana, um, as I left the Illawarra. I went the whole way around Australia, 18 months later, and then I've still got this money in, in the bank going, I really need to get back into the real estate market. And I was being pushed out um, from Wollongong. Everything was far too expensive for me. And it was just so bizarre. I literally, you know, looking at real estate and thought, oh, wow, well, that's somewhere I could afford, the Conjola area. Um, so these sort of out of the way places and uh, as I was self-employed, I could work from anywhere. I, it, it didn't worry me. In fact, I quite like being away from it all. So yeah, I just found myself there at, uh, at Bendalong boat ramp, um, one night in my motorhome. Um, and I just absolutely fell in love with the place straight away. So, um, I went to the real estate agent and said, um, have you got anything for this much money? And, um, yeah, I was taken to a fair, a, a couple of um, let's say renovators delights and, <laughs> um, yeah, and just got in. So, um, I probably got about the last cheap, you know, do a rapper there was available. Yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful story. And you're, I guess you're right. Yeah. The housing prices of Manana have really risen as we're as with everywhere else around Sydney, everywhere. but yeah, yeah, Manana really does have it all, doesn't it? It's got the beach, the bush, uh, a great community, um, a lake and you are away from it also for people who you know enjoy being away and having that seclusion and the quiet that is just perfect yeah well if you love the great outdoors then it's perfect for you um but if you want uh shopping health care work um you know schools yeah. <laughs> churches then it's not very good for you because half an hour drive is what you need to do every day just to even get the basics really um so yeah it's it's ideal for for people who um you know are, more intrepid are, yeah yeah that, at that stage in their life and i mean of course i guess now we've all so many more people have realized that they can work from home so it's opened that up a bit but um yeah, it's uh, it, when I moved there, of course, before I, I bought this house, I did my due diligence and I went to the local council and I said, so uh, is there any kind of development planned for the area, anything I should know about? And they said, mm, yeah, you might want to know about these three parcels of land that have been slated for housing developments for quite a long time. Now, nothing's happened with them. Um, you know, it's been like 20 years, um, but they are zoned residential. They've been earmarked for residential. Um, and so I was quite alarmed that not long after I moved in, one of these uh, developments actually went ahead and there seemed to be like no community consultation. It, ju it just kind of happened like it was this awesome patch of um, coastal scrubland, you know, um, and it was the cut through from Kanjurong Point to Manana and it just, the fences went up and the machines came in and they just obliterated everything. Um, it was 
disturbing. It was distressing. I mean, people were getting, you know, diamond pythons in their backyard and antichinus going through their houses and uh, kangaroos, uh, di- you know, not knowing where they should go. And the sound of mm. machines tearing down trees and, um, and mulching them up, you know. Um, so I very quickly, um, mobilized really. I mean, I was absolutely the new kid on the block. Um, but I joined the local residents association. They're called a community consultative body, the CCB. And I, I joined the committee straight away and, um, and got active and it ended up with, uh, a couple of my neighbors on each side and us having, having cups of tea and talking about this and, how the locals were just like, oh, yeah, yeah, it'll never happen with these other two developments. And um, then, uh, you know, these for sale signs went up for both of these places and there were no Facebook groups or anything happening in this town. And so we decided we need to start a Facebook group, find out about these proposed developments and get the community engaged and, and uh, get them interested. And instead of expecting everyone to go to these, you know, council websites or state government websites and try to make sensible of these documents, let's break it down, make it simple, you know, work together mm. instead of just expecting individuals to do it off their own bat. I mean, I think these things are purposefully made complex to put people off getting involved. So that's how Manana Matters started. It started as a Facebook page and then when the fires came along, that's when it um, it changed into something altogether, you know, else. Different, yeah. yeah. I guess that very first uh, residential development uh, really did herald a change uh, coming for Manana. Do you have any sense of what was going on in the wider um, economy or, you know, the state as to why this very dormant idea of, um, of large residential development around the Manana area had all of a sudden um, risen up to be a change that was happening? Well, it's interesting because back then, so we're talking about 2017, um, there were so many, there was always something available on the real estate market for sale in Manana. And, you know, I mean, just because they were beyond what I could afford, there were certainly affordable, there were affordable houses there. And there were lots of blocks of land that had never been developed. And so when this first one went up, it was a 40 block development and it was a local developer. Um, and they'd been sitting on it for a while. So these areas had been slated by a, a government a long time ago, and really, it they were being land banked for when there was a better time. But I must say that when that one went ahead, the locals were just like, "Why? Mm. <laughs> you know, there's so much available. Why would you do that now?" Um, but they did, and the blocks did sit there vacant and empty, and uh, a lot were for sale. A lot were reduced in price until the coronavirus sort of changed everything. Yep, and that, yeah, changed a lot of things in yeah. the world. So then you set up the Manana Matters uh, group initially as the Facebook page, as you said, yeah. and 
of what uh, what is manana matters to you so um why is it opposed to this type of development in particular yeah well look we i guess those three developments as a whole manana matters didn't start out like oh we're opposed to development or anything like that it was really um to inform the community and make sure that the community was aware of what was going on and to engage them to make sure that they took the opportunity to respond to you know various development applications or planning proposals so just to make sure that um you know nothing was being missed there but from a personal point of view i mean i love animals um they're so important to me and i appreciate the importance of biodiversity for humans to survive as well um so it started out like that but when the fires happened it and the fires swept past or manana nearly right through it twice so once on new year's eve and once the weekend after and our local fireys um you know kept a check on on things and were able to to stop that first fire, which unfortunately uh, did, you know, we saw loss of life just across the water at Conjola on mm. that, that fire. And um, the local fireys were, were able to uh, pre- prevent the embers from encroaching in the actual residential area. So it literally ran up the flank of Manana. And then the following weekend it came back absolutely with a vengeance and it, it hit north bend along and then through bend along and then right through to manana it was burning the back fences of the houses at manana and honestly there's nowhere to go people were were trapped in there including tourists and um people were were diving into the ocean and swimming out as far as they could um the the aerial assistance uh, were turned away because there was just too much smoke over town. It was unsafe for them. And right at the death knell, a southerly came in and blew the fire back on itself and the, the town was saved. Uh, it could have been such a different story. Uh, after all of that aftermath and after uh, we were um, actually disconnected from the rest of the world for about six days because the power lines had fallen down over the one road in and out. Mm, and there was and, no mobile uh, phone coverage. Exactly. We had no mobile phone coverage. Um, we were actually getting assist. The locals, it, it's exactly what's just happened with the floods up in Lismore. The locals mobilised and they helped each other out. There were people on boats and jet skis and um, going doing the the boat journey over to Aladulla and bringing in medical supplies for people who needed the medication and so forth. Um, anyway, the, the township absolutely rallied and uh, everyone, you know, got through. Um, but in the aftermath, we realised that, one, this first housing development, which they were already selling blocks for, and in actual fact they'd even pegged it out for clearing um, that it was due to happen like right then and uh, it, it it didn't burn. So the whole of the Conjola National Park surrounding us had burnt and when you realise the severity of the fires, you, you knew 
that no animals survived. Nothing survived that. It burnt and it burnt again, you know. Mm. Bendalong Mountain, they reckon it it just kept, like the wind kept changing and it just kept burning. And we did lose a number of houses in that area. Um, so can then, you paint me a picture of what the bush that was uh, not burnt is yeah. like and what what that looks like? Yeah, well, so you've got these two developments. So the the first one we'll talk about is that 20 hectare lot and we like to refer to that now as the Manana Special Conservation Reserve. <laughs> <laughs> That's our end game. It's it's old um you know, mature trees, hollow bearing. We know that there's raptor nests in there. Um, one of our local fires is actually our, our president of our Manana Matters Environmental Association, Bill. Um, he fought the fires himself and um, his in-laws are wildlife uh, rescuers and rehabilitators and he had released a, a greater glider in that land in the past. Um, so, yeah, you, you're talking about old growth um, or mature, let's say mature forest, um, even some remnants of, of literal rainforest. Um, so a few special ecological communities, some that are, uh, endangered. So, yeah, um, it's a place actually, you don't really want to go, you, you don't want to try to wade your way through it because you'll end up with ticks. you'd be looking at dense scrub in some areas um but it does have quite a nice um asset protection zone around it so you can walk the periphery of the of the land and um yeah i've certainly photographed square-tailed kites in there and seen goshawks and so forth Mm. so so that's the the one that they wanted to put 180 houses on um then the other one it's quite cruel it's a 76 hectare lot uh, on one side it adjoins the inyada beach and on the other side it adjoins it, it adjoins the inyada drive which is the main um road through to the manana hamlet and cruelly um half of this land was always designated as environmental conservation now that half was absolutely decimated in the fires like it 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 was just black sticks and the ground was still smoldering days later and then the half that didn't burn is the half they want to tear down to put about 300 houses on mm. so and at one stage it was 300 now they're talking about 100 large lots but of course you can subdivide we'll end up with 300 houses if it goes ahead that land is is a critically endangered ecological community basically the whole of that that land is and we're talking about a um it's called an SAII or um what is it a um significant and irreversible impact entity so it if if they did obliterate that that commu- ecological community there, it means we would basically have none left. Mm. So it's that uh, it's that special. The area that land too is it's it's a floodplain. So developers speak about building levee banks and you know putting houses up behind retaining walls and so forth. And when are we going to realise that these are not areas that you build on? They're not areas you put houses on. And we need these areas for the special fauna that that live there and can only live in those areas as well. 
Yeah. yeah. And the bushland uh, is still recovering years later. Mm. And uh, before the fires came through, that, that all of those parcels of land, including a lot more, were refuge for species such as the greater glider and the swift parrot. Can you talk me through how the fires changed the fight um, for these blocks? Yeah, because, you know, I guess before we had this massive, it's like 11,000 hectare Conjola National Park that these animals could go to. But we very quickly realised that now these little passes, this refugia, they call them, anything that survived, you know, if it made its way there, then that's that's the only place it had to go. For a long time, there was no, no shelter in the areas that had been burnt. So, you know, some people might imagine that, oh, yes, I can hide here for a bit and now I'll go back to where I came from. But there was no no shelter, no food, um, so and, and a dangerous place to be as well. So the locals were actually supporting the wildlife for quite a while by providing feed. Um, unfortunately, there were horrific stories of, you know, fireys being out in the firegrounds and, and just seeing birds literally drop from the sky, um, you know, having to extinguish flames on greater gliders and so forth. And so many animals ended up dying a very cruel death. Anything that, you know, didn't get away completely unscathed, it wasn't good. So these parcels of land now also, you've got to re- appreciate that they're the seed banks to regenerate the national parks that lost so much. So it's a long-term investment. Um, And unfortunately, once you've had fire go through with this severity, now you've got a landscape which is even more susceptible to fire. So it's been shown that mature forests will actually, um, they'll help you, uh, help protect you from fire and they can withstand fire. Mm. That's why logged areas uh, are so so bad when it comes to fire because you've got um f- you know fire uh fuel on the ground as well so really important i know it's tempting to look at this epicomic growth that you see shooting out and everything sort of starts to look so green after a year or so but actually it it takes a really long time it takes years and years for these areas to now, um, you know, get back to that point where they can withstand things like fire. Mm. And you've recently found ghost mushrooms in Kundurong Point. These are fascinating freaks of nature. Can you tell me a bit more about those? Yeah, well, look, I haven't actually seen them myself, but we've got, um, within our group, we've got keen naturalists and photographers and they were so excited and sent through these photos and um, so we found out a little bit more about them. But they're definitely not edible, I know that much. No. <laughs> <laughs> and they're pretty cool and, um, yeah, they're they they they're obviously, um, you know, well um, appreciated and people will travel a long way to come and see them. It was a very popular post that we put on Facebook. <laughs> Yeah, so the scientific name is uh, Omphalotus nidiformis, and I believe I haven't seen them in the wild either, but I do believe that they luminesce, uh, yeah. which 
is quite amazing. Um, obviously not not the only things in nature that luminesce, but these um, these are definitely something that I would travel to have a look at. Yeah, well, I sort of came to realise that there's not just, you know, like I'm a birder, I will travel a long way to see a, a lifer, as they call them, um, and then there's storm chasers and now I know that there's mushroom chasers as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So the council approvals that have already gone through for these blocks of land, um, they're a bit unusual, aren't they? They have been talked about as zombie development approvals. Uh, can you explain what is meant by the term zombie development yeah. approvals? Yeah, look, in actual fact, one of the, so the 20 hectare lot uh, that had a, an approved development application, so that had council approval, um, but the other one, it has state zone, you know, it was like a actually called a major 3A development back at the time when it was slated for a, a future development. Um, so it's never had actually council approval. It's never had a, uh, had a development application go all the way through. It's gone through many owners over the time. And it's exactly the environmental constraints I was speaking about earlier, um, which have meant it, it, nothing's ever ever flown there um so but what what it is is i guess a zombie da is is another way of saying just land banking so people will buy these things they'll sit on them they'll hope that in the future it'll be a more acceptable proposition uh it might be you know not viable at this moment in time and unfortunately with the one that the 20 hectare lot that did have the council approval many years ago uh, when they got that approval, the, an earlier developer actually, they had to do very little to enact that DA and that meant that the DA held forever. So, uh -huh. you know, now we're looking at something that would never be approved in this day and age and so you can see that it's not it's not right. The system is not uh, working there. Mm. When the fires went through, that was our first, you know, the, it, it's like, okay, so clearly we can't remove this habitat. It's, it, it, the fires changed everything and it's far too important in providing this refuge. But legally um, there was no mechanism to stop it. So the first thing we did was actually petition Parliament, and for such a small community, we actually got we had to do it with hand signatures because um, that's all that uh, the government would accept at the time, and we got something like two thousand signatures, which was unbelievable, and in a very short space of time because we had to act very quickly. Of course, then. COVID happened and government shut down. They weren't having their sittings and and now these days we have parliamentary uh, petitions that, that are online. So we've come a ways but we still don't have a way of making sure that these zombie DAs aren't plaguing communities for years to come. So just because it was a good idea, somebody thought many years ago, now that we know very clearly the the environmental importance of these lands, it's um, 
no nobody's happy with them going ahead so yeah and i guess the things have changed so much in the intervening years um especially with cumulative impact assessments and we know that you know that is a really important area to 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 be looking at especially in this situation uh where we do have these yeah. legacy issues that are still there um now can you tell me about how the environmental defenders office became involved Mm, oh, thank God for the EDO. <laughs> Literally, um, I emailed the EDO just with an absolute plea for help. I mean, um, one of the locals who owned a drone put it up and took some footage of the devastated landscape after the fires. Um, we threw it to some music, um, Flame Trees, uh, Sarah Blasco's version, and, you know, said, look, we, you know, we, we managed to get 3,000 tourists out uh, this time between the fire events, but, you know, could we, could we do it again? Do we really want to bring in all of this other development since we're so, so lacking in infrastructure? And can we afford to, like, lose this habitat, this refugia, uh, when we've already lost so much? And we i had sent that out and um with the help of now what was becoming quite a group um of supporters you know um we'd sent it out to local politicians and the council and anyone we could think of and yeah i i reached out to the environmental defenders office and said please is there some way you can help us um you know, we, we've at least got to know the extent of the damage of these fires before we allow any more destruction. They couldn't agree more and they jumped straight on board and they've been fantastic. And even though they, they saw that, um, that particular battle through to the, the day of court, um, they're, they're still very much with us and holding our hand until, um, we reach our objective. Mm. So what studies were done um, during this process uh, to inform the court case? Mm. Yeah, because, of course, being a zombie DA, they were able to rely on environmental impact assessments from years ago, you know? Yeah. And that's just ridiculous because a lot changes in a short space of time. Um, And, of course, when you have an event such as the catastrophic Black Summer bushfires, well, you know, it's un- undeniable what changes. So uh, they had to go and redo uh, and update these environmental assessments. Um, there was also uh, a specific study about the greater glider and whether it was likely to still occur uh, on the land. Unfortunately, um, the the fires, you know, birds will drop out of the sky even before flames reach them just from the smoke inhalation and it seems that that gliders are quite susceptible as well um so you know over a few days they did some surveys it's not to say that they don't exist there and certainly some might have moved in since so it's a moment in time um but what they did find was that the gray-headed flying fox was quite reliant on that land because they'd uh, lost so much of their home bases as well um so yeah many there were quite a few uh species that were on the um threatened species list that were recorded after the fires the government did come up with a provisional list of 
species that you know needed to be looked into as well because of that event that fire event so that added more to the list and where are things at now so you mentioned that um it you know went to court and but you're still mm-hmm. in connection with the edo uh, where are we standing right now yeah so we uh the the whole premise of the court case was that we said uh you have to use the precautionary principle um we know that special species have been recorded, threatened species, uh, have been recorded on site in the past. That's proven through the Atlas of Living Australia and so forth, you know, official records. So we said you have to have that due diligence and you have to use use what they call the precautionary principle, um, to which is one of assuming that they're going to be there unless you can prove otherwise. And that this would, if this went ahead, it would have a significant impact on threatened species. So what happened was that the um, Minister for Environment did determine what they call uh, that this project was a controlled action. So that made the developer go away and do further studies and answer a lot of these questions that had been raised. So they have gone ahead and done a lot of that and then it's um it gives the um community an opportunity to then respond to their findings so that happened the department of environment was inundated with responses and now we're waiting for a final determination um the developer themselves still have a step to fulfil in that process before that determination and they haven't done that as yet either. So, yeah, the other development is is a step behind. So it's a bit of a waiting game. I mean, it's kind of sounding a bit like they're still doing what they do best, which is sitting on it. Mm. We, we would love for that land to be purchased by the state and to be created, um, formed into a, a special conservation reserve in memory of all of the lives that were lost in the Black Summer bushfires. So we're not just speaking about human lives, but all of the animals. I mean, it it numbers in the in the millions the animals that were lost. So yeah, we we had. Um, quite good support from the Minister for Planning and Public Spaces and the Minister for Environment that they had money in the in the coffers that could have gone into it. We just needed the perfect storm of the the developer willing to sell at an appropriate price, the government coming in and the local council supporting as well. Um, yeah, but at the moment we haven't quite arrived there. Yeah, is it looking... Uh- I guess, possible that that might happen? Well, we've got a saying, <laughs> it's, um, you know, it, it's not over till the fat wombat sings <laughs> and uh, we, we're definitely in there for the long haul. Look, I guess I was a bit naive when I came into this because I just thought you can see what's right and what needs to happen and so you just do it, you know, and it'll be done. Uh, you know, you make enough people aware and it'll happen but... I realize now that these things do take time. So mm. it's it's you you've got to be in there for the the long game. And uh, we are. Yeah. And everything we've spoken 
about uh, is showing, I guess, the community spirit that there is in Manana and the resilience of the people that live there for really a very small community um, to make so much noise and to band together so well is quite amazing. Um, so is what sort of advice would you give to others uh, on their first steps to take to go down this journey if they have a similar issue where they live? Mm. Yeah, I mean, certainly I, I think the main thing is if you have an issue with something, and I think this could really be anything, so you might be talking to your partner or your kids or your neighbour about something that doesn't sit right with you. Don't just talk to your neighbour or, or your partner. Don't just put a comment on Facebook. Actually do something. I think it's actually interesting how powerful your one voice is, even if it's writing a letter to your local council, you know, turning up to your residence meeting, just getting involved. There, it, there are things you can do and the thing that Manana Matters taught us is that, okay, it was me and a couple of neighbours who thought, oh, let's start this Facebook group. But when we needed help, help came from everywhere. And no one person could hope to um, do as much as Manana Matters has done. Um, but when you all add your skills and your experience and your ideas and your support, um, it's amazing what you can achieve together. So we sort of used to say we we started a ripple and now that ripple has become a wave and we are aiming for a tsunami. You know, we want the tsunami of change. And it's awesome to know that we have inspired other communities um, to, to start banding together and start talking about what's happening in their backyard and how they can make a difference. Um, it was really, I think, really lucky that Manana Matters Facebook page happened to be there because it gave a conduit where people could start the conversation. Um, our very first protest was yoga on the side of the road um, the day that they were supposed to be coming in and erecting the fences and bringing in machinery to fell this forest. And it was right at the time when they announced the COVID restrictions. So if you can cast your mind back a few years ago, you were allowed to go outside but only to exercise and mm -hmm. you had to be socially distanced. So a few of us just rocked up at 6am and started doing yoga on the roadside. And then we put a call out on Facebook and said, oh, the, uh, the manana, um, you know, special conservation reserve, as we call it. So I think that's a really great place to take your dog for a walk today or push bike ride with the kids, you know, and it was hilarious. We just ended up with a hundred, like word got out. We had people coming in from Milton, Ulladulla and so forth down from Nowra. And everyone was just out there like a surfboard under the arm or tennis rackets, you know, someone rocked up <laughs> scuba gear on their backs. Do you know what I mean? It was really quite hilarious. And even when the police showed up, all they could do was really smile. Um, so where there's a will, there's a way that taught us. Um, but, yeah, I think um, just start and keep a track of everyone, like their names and their contact details and 
what they do for work or what their experience is or what's their level of ability to contribute. And before you know it, you've got kind of this stakeholder list of all of these different people you can call on. In our case, I say we were really lucky because people had gone through a life-threatening emergency and it was a way that we could actually really support each other through a very dark time in our lives as well. And it, this land now re, um, resembles or um, symbolises, I guess, hope for this community. I think it would destroy a lot more uh, than the forest and homes for animals if it was uh, allowed to be lost. Well, thank you so much for your time today, George. It's been really lovely talking to you. Um, how can we help Manana Matters Environmental Association to keep fighting that good fight? What can we do? Well, we'd love you to jump onto our Facebook page, uh, which is just facebook.com forward slash Manana Matters. Um, we're also on Instagram and Twitter if they're more your thing. Um, we do have an association of which you can become a member if you'd like to get um, really involved. And, yeah, so just keep an eye on that. We put calls out every now and then for people to rally and respond to development. You know, we had to recently, um, this new development application for the larger uh, land, parcel of land. So the council saw... I think it was over 300 submissions, unique individual submissions opposing that that development. So, yeah, like we're, we're, we're happy for houses to go up in appropriate areas. Absolutely, there's a need for that, um, but not when it's one of the last refuges for, for animals that have um, escaped the flames and particularly not when it's critically endangered ecological communities and a floodplain as well. So, Definitely. yeah, I think uh, we might have broken a, a record there <laughs> of responses. So, yeah, any support's appreciated. And, um, yeah, just go and do your own thing as well. Mobilise because you can't do everything, you know. It's like how do you eat, eat an elephant one bite at a time? You know, you've got to just start and start to gather people around you and then you'll be ready for when it happens in your backyard. And yeah, I can't, I can't, I need to stress that we're not just talking about housing development here because that, that just happens to be what the situation is, is where we are, but um, it, it could be anything. could be anything. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, that wraps up this episode of Beyond the Green Line podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Green Line, brought to you by Moss Environmental. Subscribe to our podcast for your weekly invitation to join the conversation. Until next time, keep thinking green.